Well, good morning again to everybody here, and for those tuning in on online, Facebook world, or you're listening to the podcast, uh, we are glad that you are following along and joining us in worship, even if it's virtually. We'd love to have you here in person, but if you're listening virtually, we're glad. We are starting uh, week five of our current series, and our series has been a church like Jesus. We've been discussing what does it mean to be a church that actually models itself after Jesus. Because we've discussed over the, over the thousands of years that the church has existed, it's become a lot of different things. And it's, it's done some really good things, but if Jesus were to walk in and see the church now, would he even recognize it? Because sometimes we, we become about so many other things besides the one thing. And it's not to say that our, our business meetings and looking at budgets and our programs aren't good things, but are they standing in the way of the best thing that is Jesus? So we've been discussing that through different lenses. We've discussed what it means to be an invitational church. We discussed creative communication. Do you remember the passage we used for creative communication? When Jesus bent down in the sand and he drew and, you know, ye without sin cast the first stone and just, I mean, Jesus had this creative way of communicating these timeless truths. We talked about first impressions. And then last week, Rachel spoke to us about worship. What does it mean to worship as a Jesus-centered church? Well, today we're going to be discussing the topic of care and follow-up. And more specifically, when we talk about care and follow-up, we're going to be talking about what does it mean and why is it important as a church to do care and follow-up with guests? And I can tell you it's not just so that you can get them back. There's a whole lot deeper thing going on here. So we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to use this passage of the resurrected Jesus returning and talking to Simon Peter and repeating those phrases, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, uh, to speak of that. But before we go any further, let's go to God in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are, that you love us so deeply, that you care for us deeper than we can understand. And as we continue in our worship that is focused on you, Lord, it's not about us. But as we ponder upon your words in the Gospel of John, and as we ponder what they mean for us as we seek to be a church like Jesus, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds to hear your word. That you'd silence any voice in us but your own. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints said, amen. So for us to understand this passage that Tyler read for us earlier, I think we need a little context. It's kind of tough when we jump in right there at chapter 21, and there's been all these chapters of things going on before. Everything is better in context. So let's set up a little bit of the context here. We're in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John. This is near the end of the Gospel. Jesus has already been through his death. And he has already been persecuted. He's already had a bulk of his ministry. And this is his return after his resurrection. And he's returning on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. And off there on the Sea of Galilee are his disciples returning to what they once did. After Jesus has died and, and, and everything, they, they just went back to their old lives. 
their lives had been so different for so long, hadn't it? I mean, they, they would follow Jesus for, the, for these, their, their guess maybe, maybe around a three-year period or so that they were following Jesus around. Their lives were changed, and then they just went back to what they knew. And so Jesus returns to them on the shore, and they don't even know who he is. And it's kind of interesting because it sets the scene of this dichotomy, especially when it comes to Peter. Because if any of you remember the story of Peter, what happens to Peter during the trial of Jesus? What does he do that Jesus said he was going to do? He denied him. Not once, but how many times? Three times he denied Jesus. And so as, as they return to the shore, Peter notices and recognizes Jesus for who he is, and he flings himself out of the boat. And that brings back to mind when he stepped out of the boat and stepped on the water. This time, he didn't walk, bother trying to walk on water. He just jumped out, swam to shore, and ran to Jesus, excited to see his Savior resurrected, standing there before him. And Jesus is standing there before this fire on the seashore, a little reminiscent of the fire that Peter once warmed himself around in the temple court and the high priest when he denied Jesus yet again. But this time he's standing before Jesus himself. We now experience the reunion of the resurrected Jesus with Peter. And I ask you this question to put yourself in the shoes of Peter at this point. When things get tough and you feel beaten down, and you don't know what to do, what do you do? When things get rough, when things, when you just, nothing else seems to make sense, maybe you've been doing this new initiative and you're just confused and you don't know what to do, what do you tend to do? Pray? Then you're a better person than me, Evelyn. Anybody else? What do you, what do, you do? Is prayer always our first? Do we not tend to kind of just return to what we know? Return to your normal routine? If something else doesn't make sense and you can't figure it out, you, turn to, you return to what you know. Then I'll just, I'll just do it the way I've always done it. Maybe it's not the right way anymore, but at least I know how to do it this way. Am I the only one that does that, or is, are there other people in the room? We love to return to what we know. That's why we love to sit in the same seats over and over again. You know, I look out here and you're all sitting in about the same seats that you, you normally do. So that's how I can tell if you're here or not. We're creatures of habit, and when, and when things are changing all around us, there's chaos all around, we just return. We bury our heads, and we return to what we know, and that's exactly what the disciples have done. Can you imagine how confused they must have been? Because, you know, they're not like us to be able to look back on Scripture and say, well, I know how this is all going to end. Even though Jesus was telling them, they, they can't just look and see the end of the story. They had followed this man around. They would given their lives to this man, and then he died. End of story gone. And so they did all they knew to do and returned back to what they knew. Back to their previous livelihood. Everything that's familiar. So Jesus' opening question to Peter is not insignificant. First question right there in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? This is not an insignificant question. Let's first note that Jesus uses Peter's old name. Simon Peter. Simon. 
Because if you remember in the scripture passage, Jesus chose to, to refer to Simon as Peter. In fact, he told him, he said, I, I, from now on, I'm calling you Peter, which is Petros in the Greek. Petros means rock. He said, so I'm going to name you rock, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And that was after Peter had recognized Jesus as the one Messiah, the Savior of all. In that recognition, Jesus said, yes, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. But the rock had returned to what he knew. And so even Jesus acknowledges this in calling him Simon. You've gone back to your old life. You've, you're not living into this new life that I've given you. And so you are Simon. How the great Peter has fallen. And the rock of the church is back to fishing. And when Jesus asked Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these he refers to Peter by his old name and his old association to his father, too. No longer is he his own man, it's his, he's back to being the son of John. Do you love me more than these? He's, and then, how does Simon respond? He continues with verse 15. Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. So Simon Peter musters enough courage to say, yes, Lord. The man who just jumped out of the boat and swam to shore smelling like fish says, yes, Lord, I know I love you. And then Jesus says to him a curious phrase, feed my lambs. And he repeats this to him three times with just subtle variations, but essentially saying the same thing each time. Three times, hear him. Each time Jesus repeats the question, it almost seems to strip away the denials of Peter. See, the number three is not insignificant. Three times Jesus asked him this question. How many times did, time did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. So each time he asks that question, he's stripping away one of those denials of Peter. Each time he repeats, it almost it strips away the, the hard heart that Peter must have had at that moment. Just chipping away, chiseling away. As I was reading this passage, it reminded me of, of a great movie. How many of you have seen the movie Goodwill Hunting? There's one scene in it. I wish I could show it to you, but there was so much language to edit out. I was like, I just can't do it. It's, the, the movie is full of language. So if you go watch it, it's a good movie, but you have to bear with the language. It's pretty brutal at times. But there's this one really powerful scene. So if you haven't seen the movie, it's, it stars Matt Damon as Will. And Will is this genius with a brilliant IQ who is living in Boston. And he's just, his, his life, he's, he's just one of the, uh, the, the lowlifes, so to speak. He and his band of friends get together, they go out drinking, and then they work, you know, construction jobs or whatever jobs they can find, and yet here he is, he's this brilliant guy, he ends up being a janitor at MIT and solving this graduate level math problem that nobody could solve, so this professor discovers him and is like, wait a second, and so he, he decides to try to groom him, but in the mean of all that, he ends up getting arrested, and so this professor goes in and negotiates 
uh, some leniency for him if he would just meet with his friend who happens to be a therapist played by Robin Williams. He plays this therapist named Sean. And in this scene, you know, they, they have a rough start because Matt Damon character's will is, is hardened by his life. He's hardened by so many things. And, he, and he's just, he's out against the world. But Sean begins to break through little bit by little bit. In one of the later scenes of the movie, he's, he's garnered some trust with Will. And he and Sean are talking about their past lives. And, and Sean, the therapist, starts sharing with you, well, you know, I, I had an abusive father. He starts sharing all this about his tough upbringing. And Will says, yeah, you know, I, my father used to beat me. He said he put three options out on the table. He put a belt. He put a wrench and he put a spoon. And then Sean, Robin Williams' character, says, well, I would pick the belt every time out of those. And Will says, you know what? I chose the wrench each time. Because F my dad. And he said, well, you know what? You know what, Will? It's not your fault. He's like, I, I, know, I, know, I know. It's not my fault. He said, and then he steps a little closer. He says, Will, it's not your fault. He says, I, I, I know, man. And he says, no, no. Will, it's not your fault. He's like, no, just stop. Stop messing with me, man. Stop messing with me. Will, it's not your fault. And he keeps repeating it, getting closer and closer. And you see, you see Will's character just, just starting to break down. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Each time he's saying it, it's penetrating further and further and further. Until at the end of scene that Will, this hardened Bostonian, is crying in the arms of his therapist. Sometimes we have to hear things over and over again for them to penetrate the hardened hearts that we tend to get as life gets tough. We have to hear it over and over again because our hearts hardened. I picture Peter in a similar fashion. Maybe not so much of the language, but Peter's hearing that and he's saying, you know, do you love me? Yes, yes. Feed my sheep. Do you, do you love me? Yeah, yes, Lord. I almost imagine by the last one that Peter probably has tears streaming down because each of those questions of Jesus has penetrated a little further, chipping away the hardness of his heart, chipping away that denial from him. And so why is that important for us to consider when we're talking about guests in our church? I think it's because of this. A church like Jesus in love, reaches out to people as many times as it takes. As many times as it takes. I mean, we've heard about this with inviting people. Can you invite someone just once to anything, not just church? No, you have to invite them many, many times. In fact, it's up to like seven times or more before someone might respond. Why is that? We have to, we have to chip away at it. And you do it not to be a nuisance, you do it in love. Reaching out to somebody. But that's not just inviting people to things. It's how we should treat our guests when they come. They should have as many touches as possible. Again, not us trying to be overbearing on anybody. But if we care about somebody, then maybe they need to hear it. We don't know what they're walking in with. What they're bearing on their shoulders. What hurts they've been in through their life. As I've mentioned in past weeks, people usually don't show up at a church if they're not hurting in some way. Why else would they come? We have to keep reaching out. We have to be persistent. We have to be intentional 
in how we reach out to people, just as Jesus is being intentional reaching out to Peter. We have to do it with checking in on people. It's done because we love them. It's done because sometimes we are chipping away at years of hurt, years of abandonment. And it takes a while to recognize this new life that Jesus is calling us into. So first point, a church like Jesus in love reaches out to people as many times as it takes. You got that point? Let's move on to the next. In verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Again, it's that repeated phrase. At first, it's feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus repeats it three times. And these are the jobs of a shepherd, are they not? Is that not the job of a shepherd to tend, to see, to feeding the sheep? It's a job of a shepherd. And so why is this important? See, Jesus is forgiving Peter, but he's doing so much more here than just forgiving Peter. He already forgave Peter. He already forgave everyone on the cross. Forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. This is important because Jesus is not only forgiving Peter of his sin, he's restoring him to new life and to new authority. He's given Peter the authority he once gave him before, but then when Peter gave up in the denial, I'm calling you, Peter, to be a shepherd of this church, to be a shepherd of the people that I'm placing in the care. You're going to be the rock in which I build this church, so therefore I'm calling you to be a pastor, this guy who denied me, Three times, I'm not only forgiving you, I'm restoring you to new life. Amen? Don't we need restoration? We need more than forgiveness. Forgive me all you want, but there's nothing in forgiveness if we are not restored. And that's what is offered through Jesus. And what we try to live and embody in the church is that we're not only seeking to forgive you. We want to restore you to new life. We want to restore you to mint condition. To what you were called to be. Who you were meant to be. That's what Jesus wants. Jesus doesn't just care about redeeming our past. He also cares about restoring our future. Jesus doesn't just care about redeeming our past. He also cares about restoring our future. If we are to be a church like Jesus, we must be focused on the same. We must be focused on restoration. So that leads us to our second point. Our second point is this. A church like Jesus does more than forgiveness, but seeks to restore. A church like Jesus does more than just forgive. It seeks to restore. It can be really easy for a church to see our guests as fresh blood to grow an organization. And you know what? As a church plant, that's really for easy for us to fall into because we would love to see this thing God is creating grow, don't we? We want to see a Christ-centered community grow, doing more out in the community, changing lives, seeing hope and healing brought to hurting and hopeless people. But we can't let that cloud our judgment when we see people coming in to just seem as fresh blood to fuel some machine. No, we must see each and every person 
as a beautiful creation of God in need of restoration. Sure, they may come in a little dusty, a little broken, not looking quite as beautiful as we know God creates each and every one of us to be, but we see the possibilities. We use our imaginations to say, this is a child of God calling back to the fold. It's not about us. Someone visiting, a guest, it's not about us. It's not about some program. It's about a person and their connection to the person, Jesus. How we treat our guests matters because in the beginning, because in its beginning of our God-given work to see the world, to see our world and the kingdom of God restored, how we treat guests matters. We do it for love. We do it because God has called us to see restoration in our world. That's the one and only point. So that's our second point. We move on to verse 17. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Again, he's repeating the same question. This is the third time. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, our third and final point is another dimension of, of this restoration. Peter is reinstated as a shepherd of God's people. He isn't just restored, he's restored to a purpose. Do you get that? He wasn't just restored, he's restored to a purpose, to a higher calling. Each and every one of us have a purpose in God's kingdom. And so often people are hopeless and depressed because they don't know their purpose. And we seek out our purposes in other areas and other arenas. And sometimes we find something that brings us momentary joy. But then what happens at the end of a career if you've placed all your purpose and all your hope in this career and then you retire? And you've given up your purpose. What's your purpose then? You see... Our true purpose that God has given us doesn't change. And it affects how we do those jobs, how we live our lives, how we treat our neighbor, neighbors, how we parent our kids, how we speak to our spouse, how we love our friends, how we treat our roommates and treat our professors and teachers. It affects everything because we have a higher purpose. And so our third and final point is this. A church like Jesus helps connect people with their purpose. Again, individuals walking through that door, it's, it's not just someone to say, okay, now we finally have a parking attendant. Or we finally have someone else to help put up signs or set up or to teach the children. No, 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 no. The church exists to bring people to God and to help them live into their identity for God's kingdom and purpose. We don't follow up and get people involved because we need their help. It's because God has called them to a higher purpose. That has to be our motivating factor. We intentionally follow up and care for visitors because we know that finding their purpose is essential 
to a spirit-filled, full life that Jesus talks about. Because we've talked about it in the past. When Jesus says, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly, he's not just talking about eternal life. Yes, he is talking about eternal life, but not just that. It's not just the gift you're given upon your death. It's a gift for here and now. We can live abundantly because of Jesus. Hasn't knowing Jesus changed the way you live, how you see life? how you experience hardships and how you view them? Isn't knowing Jesus changed all of that? We need Jesus. And so we intentionally care and follow up with our guests because we know that that's the truth. That we know that Jesus has a life change for them. And so often the vehicle of that life change happens through the body of Christ, the church. And if we are to be a church like Jesus, that's what we must be about. And so as we come to a conclusion, a reminder of our three points are essentially this. That a church like Jesus is about multiple contacts, knowing that sometimes we're, we're chipping away at years of abandonment, years of hurt. And we do it in love. We're not, we're not the annoying person just sitting there knocking on the door like, hello, 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 hello. But just reaching out once to somebody is, is not enough. But it's also about, it's about restoration. It's not about fueling the machine. It's not about getting more. It's not about fresh blood. It's about restoration. And it's about finally God calling us and everyone to a greater purpose beyond us. We are finite creatures meant for eternity. That's our highest purpose. So often... We give up the hope of this greater story and buy into a lesser story, which is purely finite. It has an end. But the greater story does not. The greater purpose does not because it is beyond us. Multiple contacts, restoration, greater purpose. That is what God has called us to. Amen? Let us return to God in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for calling us to this higher purpose. We thank you for showing us what it means to be the church and that to be the church doesn't mean we have to have a building or there's a lot of things that we don't need, Lord. All we need is you and the people gathered around you and your word. So we thank you for this beautiful thing called the church, this beautiful thing that you are creating here in Wake Forest that we call Christ the Word Church. And we pray that this community would be so changed and energized by you that we would go out into the world bringing hope and healing of Jesus to those who need it most. Give us courage. Give us boldness. And Lord, when we step away from the true purpose, we pray that you would bring us back and convict us. We pray all of this in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. We now have the opportunity to come.